This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration's management agenda, which the White House built out with a lot of detail last week, focuses on just three things. And that's a wise approach, according to my next guest. We get some perspective from our longtime federal management scene observer, Bob Tobias. And Bob, the idea that it is narrowly focused makes sense to you. Tell us more. Well, I think that past presidents, when they've created their management agenda, have been all over the board. So nobody really knew where to focus their attention. And I think by reducing to three priority goals, one, strengthening the federal workforce, two, improving federal service delivery and customer experience, and three, managing the business of government, he has nailed what is most important to effectively implement service to the public. And so people can remember and focus on those three goals. Now, those goals, yes, there's only three of them, but each one is pretty big, though, and ambitious by itself, isn't it? It is. It is. But he has created an infrastructure of support, unlike other presidents. He has people who are called priority area leads, and then under them, strategic leads from across the government. In the past, A president's management agenda was driven solely by OMB, and there's not much love between OMB and agencies. This plan relies on the agencies and these priority leads and strategy leads to implement his agenda. Now, what he didn't do was speak directly to federal employees about this agenda. So they had no role in creating this agenda, but he does insists that employees and employees represented by unions to be included in how each agency will actually achieve the goals. And I think that's a real plus because it's consistent with the federal employee viewpoint survey. So for example, 66% of federal employees strongly agree or agree that I am encouraged to come up with new and better ways of doing things. So if 66% of people are already interested in doing new and better things, this will build that willingness to participate and be involved. And there's one other question that I think that's important. 74% strongly agree or agree that my work gives me a sense of personal accomplishment. So if that's the case, it's clear that federal employees want to accomplish service to the public And being given an opportunity to do it is a very, very good thing. I didn't check the math, but my first question of the deputy director for management, Jason Miller, when I interviewed him last week, was at the top level, the people assigned are political appointees. At that second level that you mentioned, the strategy leaders, he said most of them are, in fact, career And that is by design, because really, without the career workforce involved, whether bargaining unit or senior management counts also, that nothing really does happen. Fair assessment? It is. It is. Because if it's political appointees driving the train, only driving the train, you know, they come, they go. They're not often really paying attention. But the career folks are here for a time. They're really, really interested in doing governance better. So I think it was a very wise strategy that he put in place. The whole effort in some ways reminds me it has the tone of the National Partnership for Reinvention of Government during the Clinton administration. Did it strike you that way? 
It does. It really does. And I think that's an acute observation, Tom, because it is across the government. It does involve career leaders. It does involve employees. And the focus is on, I believe, non-controversial efforts to improve government service. So I think it does mirror much of President Clinton's initiative. Although President Clinton said government was too big and cost too much, this group seems to think it can't get big enough or spend enough. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. And the idea of having metrics assigned each goal, I think, probably is another stroke of brains here, because without metrics, anything is possible and nothing is possible. Yes. And there are metrics. And they're simple. I mean, for example... The priority to strengthen the federal workforce has a goal that, quote, agencies will develop equitable, transparent, and transferable career development pathways that promote career growth and agency mission delivery, close quote. All right, that's kind of unclear. But the metric is, quote, increase opportunities for skill development and flexible pathways as measured by an increase in the percentage of employees who agree to the federal employee viewpoint question, I'm given a real opportunity to improve my skills in my organization. Very, very simply measured. And it's measured on an annual basis. And the Biden administration can see whether that's heading in the right direction or the wrong direction. So it's simple, it's measurable, it's objective, and it's either being done or not. Right. They're not inventing new needles here. They're actually trying to move the needles that everyone already agrees are accurate measures of what's going on. That's exactly right. Yes. This plan's, I think, value builds on what is there. It builds on the desires of federal employees generally, and the progress is easily measured. And in your experience, these types of initiatives, once they become something that is owned by career federal employees may transcend changes in leadership, not so much necessarily the change in administration, but say there's two terms, as there have been most of the last several presidencies. The political leadership comes and goes at the agency level, but the initiatives do have a chance of carrying on through at least the length of that administration. Well, one of the, I think, problems with the president's plan is that the plan itself is not time-bound. So people don't have a specific time set out as to when these goals should be met. But the fact is, the measures that have been created can be looked at every single year. And as I said, they're either going up or they're going down or they're staying the same. So even though they're not specifically time bound, they can be measured over time. And as you suggest, if they are indeed adopted by the career workforce, will live through changes in administration. Bob Tobias is a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. As always, thanks. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity. 
and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am 
try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, 
confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. Target's new Red Card Reloadable saves you 5% every Target trip, in-store and online, and doesn't require a bank account or credit check to get approved. Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. Restrictions apply.